I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Altering events and pop culture in film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton. And once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher. And this is the A Year in Film podcast presented by Hollywood Suite. If film in 1983 could be defined by a single moment, what would it be? Well, in the running would be Tom Cruise sliding into his living room in his underpants, dancing to Bob Seger's old-time rock and roll. If disco was about escape and fantasy, rock and roll was about rebellion, sticking it to the man, and not playing by the rules. In 1981, MTV launched onto the airwaves with the phrase, Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. And pop culture, movie making, and the very idea of the rock star would never be the same again. So by 1983, filmmakers who saw this new fast cuts, bright colors, in-your-face approach to youth culture had had time to incorporate it into their films, for better or for worse. Uh, Cam... MTV, mm-hmm. big freaking deal. What happened? <laughs> what happened? Well, MTV, yeah, what happened? Yeah, Jersey Shore. Like, yeah. uh, well, I'm not going to tell you the entire history of MTV, <laughs> but we know that MTV started in uh, late 1981 uh, and was almost immediately hugely influential on culture. Uh, The interesting ways it trickles into film is uh, the fact that it kind of takes a while. Uh, It it surprises America is kind of what people say. There's a bit of a thought that uh, the early 80s are what's considered the second British invasion. And part of the reason that existed was American artists were less used to creating music videos than Mm. uh, European artists were. So... In uh, 1983, especially, which I guess I'll focus in on, uh, you saw still American artists were mostly making performance videos, videos that just showed them doing what they did, while British artists were making crazy stuff like uh, Blinded Me With Science and Hungry Like the Wolf and Come On Eileen, just like some of the most classic cinematic videos of the 1980s. But of course, 1983 is also, it should be said, the release of Thriller, which is arguably the most cinematic music video of the time and maybe of all time. It's still kind of considered a short film. Mm -hmm. 
there was it's an interesting time for rock music there was a bit of this fragmentation with like the anti-disco backlash there was a bit of uh, a slump it was a big time for touring musicians but yeah people were like trying to figure out how mtv works it's also a very interesting time because uh the reagan administration had an odd relationship with rock music in 1983 there was a very hilarious uh moment where uh the fourth of july festivities in washington were supposed to be headlined by the beach boys these are the beach boys previous headlines but interior secretary james watts says this year will be different rock will be banned Watt, who refused our request for an interview, told the Washington Post, We had the rock bands attracting the wrong element. You couldn't bring your family down to the mall. The Beach Boys, as you can see, attracted a mob of college-age whites drinking lots of beer and smoking, it seems, some marijuana. Keep in mind, again, we were talking about the Beach Boys. Yeah. Uh, and they instead went for Wayne Newton. Oh, uh, well, yeah, that's... Which, which was considered particularly pathetic, even for Reagan. That's definitely and, and... the antidote to rock right there. <laughs> yes. Mm. And the same week, Reagan was like, no, no, I'm a fan of the Beach Boys. Like, he, uh, <laughs> he even backpedaled, like, listen, I'm not that lame. <laughs> I enjoy the music <laughs> of the Beach Boys. So yeah, you can think that rock was cool and kind of outsidery, interestingly. And in Hollywood, uh, you saw that come around in the early 80s, even before MTV, with movies like uh, The Forbidden Zone with Oingo Boingo. Uh, you saw Heavy Metal, of course, a classic animated Canadian film. Uh, the Wall in 1982, Pink Floyd's basic, basically a music video turned into you know it's a bunch of music videos stitched together uh movies like wild style to kind of get into the other stuff in 1983 there was films like uh, eddie and the cruisers and suburbia and valley girl which we talk about on the show um they're all very influenced by the music uh but yeah like i say there's interestingly a vein of animated uh films especially in 1981 with both heavy metal and ralph bakshi's american pop and in 1983 there's a bit of a lost Canadian rock animated film as well, which we're going to talk about. Totally. But I think part of the year seeing this, too, is because the late 70s were such a big time for, like, rock stars. Mm -hmm. Like, you had the Rolling Stones still to, like on tour at their prime. You had Aerosmith now touring. You had these giant names and this swagger. And you also had all these punk bands that had been going at the same mm -hmm. time. So people like Iggy Pop. Then you're getting these stories because now people are coming out of that who were, like, young and had worked with these bands as roadies or had worked at the venues um, who were now in the film and television industry making these stories. And uh, our first movie is actually going to deal with that. I love the movie Rock and Roll High School unironically. I think mm -hmm. it is one of the best pieces of cinema. It makes me laugh so hard really every good. time I watch it. Anytime they refer to Joey Ramone as dreamy, <laughs> I just lose it. It's just so funny for me. And PJ Souls as Riff Randall is the best. I can't wait till we get to that, uh, that year and a year in film just so I can gush about it. Is that 1979? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. it's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. But what if you sped Rock and Roll High School up to 11, added a meta element, Malcolm McDowell doing a Mick Jagger impersonation, Daniel Stern holding a chimpanzee while wearing a Tarzan costume, and musical performances from people like Lee Ving of Fear and Lou Reed, you would have 1983's Get Crazy. It's a movie I can only truly describe as 
frenetic. Uh, <laughs> both Rock and Roll High School and Get Crazy were directed by Alan Arkish. Uh, Arkish was a Corman director, but his roots came from rock and roll. Alicia, you know a bit about him. Yeah. So when we say he was a Corman director, and it's funny how many filmmakers we have talked about both on the podcast so far and on the show A Year in Film started out with Corman. Just quite a number. Like he really was this kind of per- apprenticeship program for people that would become very important filmmakers. But he he, particularly with uh, director Joe Dante, they both worked for Corman in the same capacity in that edited all of Corman's trailers. So they would edit trailers for things like Death Race 2000 and for sort of like the really famous kind of schlocky Corman films, and then eventually started directing Corman films until they became their own filmmakers. Alan Arkish, I really love. He's, he he grew up kind of as a stagehand for concerts, specifically in New York at Fillmore's East, which is one of the most famous music venues of all time. And Get Crazy, his film from 1983, is really an homage to that kind of like, we must put on a show. Uh, Those kinds of legendary nights that would happen at Fillmore East where you would have bands that, you know, you wouldn't, you would show up not even knowing who's on the marquee and you would see legendary performers. So that's really what he's going with with this film. You're describing it as frenetic, Becky, which I completely agree with you. And I I just want to say like the tagline, like on the poster to this film is say goodbye to your brain. (laughs) They're not wrong. They're not wrong. wrong. Like you had this with Sgt. Peppers. I mm -hmm. had this with this where I was Mm -hmm. like, does this movie exist? Like, Mm -hmm. or am I just imagining this whole thing? Well, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Like um, Sgt. Pepper definitely exists. There is an argument or a question as to whether Get Crazy exists because it's had incredible rights issues and incredible. um, The studio basically made it fail on purpose. So mm. Alan Arkish, Rock and Roll High School was a huge success and that really cemented his career that he could move away from Corman, although he didn't want to. Like I remember Corman, he said Corman told him with Rock and Roll High School, if you make this a hit, you'll never have to work for me again. And that ended up being true. Um, <laughs> but he had made in 1981 Heart Beeps, which is a film that stars Bernadette Peters and uh, Andy Kaufman in his last role. It was... One of the most dismal box office disasters of all time. Well, they're robots, aren't they? They are yes. robots. Um, Stan Winston did the makeup and the special yeah. effects and actually was nominated for an Academy Award. I was going to say, so worth noting, an Oscar-nominated yeah. film. So Heartbeeps is an Oscar-nominated film, but I, I actually think there's merit to Heartbeeps. I don't think it should be... People should be so harsh on it. I would <laughs> recommend seeing it. We bring up Heartbeeps because despite Rock and Roll High School being a huge hit... His 1981 film was a disaster. So he really wasn't in a power seat when it came to Get Crazy. He wanted this film to be more serious and and more based in reality. And we've already talked about this on the podcast, but because Airplane was such a huge hit, the studio, which was, I believe, MGM, forced him to basically make it an airplane like a parody, a spoof, a satire, make it really, really silly. Alan Arkish describes this film as having um, 1,500 jokes and 2,500 punchlines. And <laughs> he's not wrong. He's not wrong. It's so true. Like there's punchlines that you don't even understand what the, which joke it belongs to. It's Frenetic was the best description I could think of, Becky. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. And it so it takes place over one night. It's New Year's Eve. And it's, um, it's a, a theater called the Saturn Theater, which is based on the uh, Fillmore's. That that is going to be probably developed into a condo by an evil music producer played by, you know, consummate evil man Ed Bagley Jr. <laughs> I love in a full 
silver spacesuit. I love him. With Fabian and I, Donovan yeah. following alongside him. Oh my God. Yeah. And he just, and they keep shooting. I mean, he's a t- giant Nordic man to begin with, mm-hmm. but they keep shooting him from underneath so mm-hmm. he looks even bigger. But that spacesuit, man, I, I love it. I <laughs> he's love it so, so good much. in this. I think everyone's good in this. Um, and, you know, the stage manager for the, for the, this theater, which is played by Daniel Stern from, um, uh, what is that? What's the film you Your said? childhood, Home yep. Alone. Yeah, Home Alone. But I think, what's <laughs> and the, Diner. What's the cowboy? And... City Slickers, City Slickers. He, he's going to like make this concert the biggest night yet and make sure that he's going to you know stop this condo developer. It's basically the plot of one of the Muppet movies, if I think about it. I think like the Dis- the first Disney Muppet movie is almost an exact ripoff of Get Crazy, which I think is fascinating. And I did talk to Alan Arkish about that and he did not see it. But uh, <laughs> it's okay. He shot that question down in about... He smiled while he was shooting me down, but I, I do appreciate that. And so you get these, you know, all the, the these musicians you're discussing, Becky, someone like Lou Reed plays um, Auden. They're not, they're obviously not playing themselves. They're all sort of caricatures of their own musical personas, including Lee uh, Ving from Fear, who plays Piggy, this sort of like, well, and here was my Muppet thing. I'm like, Piggy's animal. Like I had like yeah. a referent for every character and get crazy. I was like, here's your Kermit. Here's your Miss Piggy. Here's your animal. He still did not buy it. But um, this is your rabbit hole, dude. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm know. I'm just saying this is your personal conspiracy theory. My, my, I'm waiting for the red string to come out. My partner's like, can you just get through one Q&A without comparing something to The Muppet Show? And I'm like, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> it is It is the ultimate commentary on uh, culture and film mm, yeah. and theater. So I yeah. get it. I yeah. will say that The Muppets do a lot less cocaine than this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also Malcolm McDowell, who is not a rock star, but in mm-hmm. fact a very large star, playing, as you say, Becky, um, a Mick Jagger character called Reggie Wanker, which made Mick Jagger quite angry and quite litigious. I also thought that he was a bit of a um, Johnny Rotten because he was like a punk guy yeah. who sold out. I see a little bit that. But he's more glam, he's isn't more he? Glam. Which sits more into, wow. almost Gary Glitter, you know, put a pin in that one, but like that sort of era. Mm. I see more I see more Mick Jagger for the whole everything around the music, like the 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 orgies that occur in this film, the like the ego. Like obviously maybe Johnny Rotten had orgies. I'm sure he did. I don't know. But um in terms of the orgies in this film, they're very Rolling Stone central. Mm. Um and there's a scene where and this is probably the most infamous scene in the film, and I think it's one of the funniest where he has Reggie Wanker has a full dialogue with his penis in the bathroom. Yes, yeah, that's right. That's how the movie ends. And that's the one part where I'm like, I guess the Muppet Show didn't do that. No. <laughs> like, that's like where the Muppet Show diverges. But uh, this is just a really silly, silly, fun film. It also has uh, Gail Edwards, who's playing someone who's kind of helping Daniel Stern's character get the theater together. She, her character's name is Willie Loman. Of mm. all things, of it's wonderful. Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Yeah. Like, why Not is sure that a why. reference? It's, uh. Yeah, if I could do that Q&A over again, I would ask Alan Arkish <laughs> about that one. What's really sad about this film is it was sold out basically during production. So eventually Alan Arkish figured out that the studio had sold uh, the shares of this film to a Wall Street tax shelter, meaning that it was designed and produced to fail so that MGM could make money off of its failure. It's essentially insurance fraud. I mean, it's not. This is all legal and this happens a lot. It's 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 also the the plot of the producers. Like, basically, this film got Max Bialis stocked, but mm. then went on to become... 
this huge cult hit. It was very unavailable. Even on home media, it was very unavailable. At the time that my partner showed this, could only really show it if you wanted to show it in a quality version. You could only show it with like the one or two 35 millimeter prints that existed. Alan Arkish in his excellent Trailers from Hell actually talks about trying to hunt down the negatives. In the transfer of the movie back and forth for these different shell companies, the negative was lost as well as the entire soundtrack. Lost. I checked all the film vaults. It was gone. Could not be found. Which is why it's never been on DVD. It was crushing. It's another film that I'm like, it's just you need to see it done right. You need to see it on a proper restoration and or on the big screen would be wonderful because the music performances are so good. They're so fun. And there's this sort of thread that you're going to see a Lou Reed performance. And it does happen, but it happens in a very surprising way. I think this is a really I have a lot of heart for this film. You love this movie. I do. Yeah. But that having been said, I mean, like you said, it was sold out because he had originally planned this film to be a lot more realistic and Mm -hmm. a lot more gritty. And I love what we have. I'm not going to lie. I do love this like wild airplane thing because I feel like that increases its rewatchability of like, oh, I didn't see that last time. This is happening here. And I would want to watch it with like a large group at midnight as it was probably intended to be watched to just hear all the different reactions and like have people call out the screen and have that kind of chaos in the theater emulating what you're seeing on the screen. Yeah. But hearing some of the stories that Alan Arkish has about like being at the Fillmore, he's got one here which I love. He was talking about uh, Joe Cocker and the Mad Dogs and Englishmen showing up uh, at the theater, and they brought their space choir, which was like a couple dozen people, who also brought their kids and their dogs, and the dogs were running around <laughs> stage, and someone dropped a baby, and apparently the <laughs> stage manager had to gather everybody around and say, okay, guys. Dogs go outside, we stop dropping babies, and then we do the show. That's the movie I kind of also want to see. I want them both to exist. Yeah. I mean, Alan Arkish is, if you know trailers from hell, you can tune in. Um, He does great interviews with, like, all the directors that work for Corman, and and he's really kind of become this film and pop culture commentator. Part of me and, and a lot of the questions that were asked at this particular screening were, what are you working? Like, what's your next film? What? And he's working a lot on television. Like, he's doing so much. He directs Nashville when that was on and a bunch of shows. You know, people like having seen people who love this film are just like, we want to see you do more of this updated for like 2020. And I personally would love that. I, I would love to see him return to this. And I think he would maybe get his vision realized and make it more serious. But no matter what, there's still going to be crazy jokes. I mean, this is the director of Heartbeeps and Rock and Roll High School. So, like, it's still going to be very tongue-in-cheek and very, very silly and a very fun film to put on if you have, like, a party and you don't necessarily need to tune into every piece of dialogue. But, like, people will stop and stand in front of the, like, screen and watch um, Malcolm McDowell have a full conversation with his penis. This is exactly the kind of movie I was talking about, which, like, you play this in the background of a party yeah. and it's fun it's and a party it's super film. cool. <laughs> Not. Yeah. The day after, but this no. one. <laughs> no, don't show the day after. I should also mention that the. I, I think I've characterized this incorrectly. The penis does talk back to him. So he's yeah. not just. But you don't actually. Sure. We need to be clear that you don't actually see the penis. You it's don't. all no. done. Yeah. No, I there's a little say- voice. You can have an unusual double bill because there is also uh, the helicopter action movie Blue Thunder stars Malcolm McDowell and Daniel Stern. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. uh, Daniel Stern may not make it through the whole movie. But uh, yes, 1983 was a big year for that pairing for some reason. That's awesome. There's also a lot of like Corman. If you love Roger Corman, there's a lot of you have a lot of Corman actors like Paul Bertel and Mary Warrenoff. And I think Dick Miller's in this in a very. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Miller's in every single 
Marvel films. So, I mean, you just have to like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Like he's in, he's in everything. I love Dick Miller. This is just, I just think, I, I just think this is so fun. And it, it, 1983 seems to be a big year for satire and for like parodies. And this is maybe the best of them. There's also weird trivia associated with this film because there are so many people in it that mm-hmm. apparently Anna Bjorn, who plays Reggie's uh, like sister mm-hmm. slash partner in this, um, she's the one who called in the tip that brought down Whitey Bulger. Yeah, what is up? How is that even possible? Weird. You you mentioned that. And I was like, I had to like look it up. I was like, what is the connection there? Isn't that bizarre? So yeah, I mean, Hollywood, right? Like, yeah. I guess that's just it is you're just around and you get mixed up with all sorts of crazy folks, possibly at Fillmore's if you're in New York. But yeah, this just because there's just so many people, you just have so many different connections. And I love I love stories about working with curmudgeons. Like, it, I are you going to talk about, about Lou Reed right now? Because he's the ultimate curmudgeon. I'm totally going to talk Aww. about Lou Reed right now because I feel so bad because I'm a huge Lou Reed fan oh, as well. Like, God, I yeah. even I even kind of like metal machine music. Like, okay. that's yeah. my little, like, Alan Arkish was also a huge fan and, like, really wanted this to be a good experience for him. And mm-hmm. Lou Reed kept going back and forth on if he liked the script, hated the script, was going to do it, wasn't going to do it. And so he decided he was going to make a mixtape for Lou Reed of all this jazz. And as Lou Reed started going through, he was giving notes on the mixtape, being like, <laughs> well, why did you pick this one of his? Like, you should have taken this one. This one sucks. Like, what were you thinking? And his wife, Sylvia, had to say, Lou, he's gone out of his way to be nice to you. Just be nice. Don't be a dick. Well, I think also if you if you Google a photo of Alan Arkish during this period of time, and I'm not saying this as a judgment, he is a goofy looking guy. Obviously a very talented, very talented, very like efficient filmmaker. I really like his films, but like he had this big, like big fro of like curly brown hair, super skinny. Like I kind of, I'm picturing when you told that story, I'm picturing him talking to Lou Reed. I'm like, yeah, that's someone who gets walked over by Lou Reed in some ways. But Lou Reed also, like, he set him up for a lot of things that Lou Reed would love. Like, yes. the first time you see the character of Auden, he's staged in a way that looks like a Bob Dylan album cover. Um, it's really clever the way they're going about this. Apparently, so Alan Arkish said, I hope I'm remembering this story properly, Lou Reed didn't watch the film until many years after it was, well, I mean, it didn't really get released. So um, Lou Reed eventually saw it. And in some run-in, kind of not far off from when Lou Reed died, um, he let Ellen Arkish know he apologized for being a dick mm-hmm. and also said he really enjoyed the film. And he he really actually liked the song, that the way he performs the song. And I do think it appears at some point on one of the Lou Reed, like posthumous best of hits or something like that. But um the track is Little Sister, and yeah. it's, I, I agree with you. And it, it's what makes me really want to see a real version of this, mm-hmm. because the way it's shot is like the mo- the calmest moment in the whole film, and it's so intimate and loving, and you understand the heart of why he loves these performances and why live performance matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, play it loud, see it live, like that's kind of the mantra, and uh, <laughs> what is the tagline, like? Turn off your brain, forget yeah. your brain, something like that. That's, that's how to watch Watch this for the giant walking joint that gets smoked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or Larry, electric Larry, the drug well, yeah, dealer. Whenever you guys are taking oh. this movie very seriously, I'm like, there's a giant joint that goes to the there, Yeah, electric Larry, the drug dealer, is uh, mm-hmm. pretty great. Yeah, that's a great I, Never I, explained. Uh, <laughs> well, speaking of creative from the heart projects that got butchered, 
so hard by a studio. Our next film hits pretty close to home uh, for myself and for Canadians everywhere. If you grew up in Canada in the 80s or 90s, Nelvana is a name you probably became familiar with when you watched cartoons. And that's because this little studio that could became a powerhouse with hits like Care Bears, Inspector Gadget, Tintin, Babar, and Franklin. But before they conquered your childhood, they made a foray into adult animation. The Nelvana team of Patrick Lubert, Michael Hirsch, and Clive A. Smith started out making a cute kids movie called Drats. And then they decided to turn it into an adult animated show. And Clive A. Smith, the director of the film, had very specific intentions for it. My inspiration for Rock and Roll was life itself in music and art. Rock and Roll music. It's not called Rock and Roll, it's Rock and Roll. Animation in Canada was not an easy thing, but it was a big thing. And weirdly, we got a lot of stuff from the UK to begin with, for example, Clive A. Smith. But a lot of our animation filmmakers came up through the National Film Board and through the CBC. These are huge training grounds and places where people were really able to experiment things in a relatively safe sort of way. And so you get groundbreaking, quite frankly, films like 1983's Rock and Rule. I really love this movie. And Cam, this is another one that was almost totally lost. Yeah, it's a movie that uh, interestingly was kind of uh, thrown off by the end of United Artists. It was a film that was developed for United Artists. And as that collapsed and got taken over by MGM, uh, the change in leadership uh, essentially left them with a movie they didn't care about. Uh, so in when you look up a release date, this is 1983's Rock and Roll, uh, very much in a strange sense, because it was sort of released then, sort of released five years later, sort mm-hmm. of released on TV in Canada in 1986. Uh, it is a movie that just, yeah, had a super botched release, considering it's full of the biggest rock stars of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a movie that weirdly was difficult to find for a long time. Uh, there was a VHS release in 1980 and a laser disc in 86 those had very small printings that almost immediately went out of print there then wasn't a dvd till 2005 uh and then there was a blu-ray i think in 2011 that is now pretty gone we're lucky now uh that uh, the rights holders have put it on youtube uh through a thing called retro rerun um but yeah it's a movie that just nobody cared enough about (laughs) and uh, it kind of never got a proper release a number of the films we've mm-hmm. talked about in this series have been about MGM, but some weird stuff was going down at MGM that they were butchering stuff left and right. Yeah, I mean, for those of our listeners who who aren't up to speed on their studio history of the last century, MGM, you know, it was the most prestigious studio of Hollywood's golden era. If you think about The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind, like MGM was the A studio. Like it was high production value and, you know, people would clamor to any release that MGM did. Come to the 1980s, that could not be further from the case. It really was a a sad decline. And that sale that you're talking about, Cam, earlier, where they acquired United Artists, I believe in 1980 or 1981, 
ostensibly bankrupted them. It was not a smart business move. By the early 80s, they had to kind of switch from a studio that was producing their own films to a distributor of independent productions. And there's very few bankable films in the 1980s for MGM. We talked about War Games earlier on an episode. Now, that is one of them. War Games made a lot of money, as did like Rocky II, Poltergeist in 1982, and Octopussy, the like kind of off-brand, one of the off-brand James Bonds. That's the on-brand James Bond. Oh, sorry. I will okay, say that's... Never, never Say Never Again is the off-brand. <laughs> got it. It's the, there's two in 1983 that we get kind of confused about. So those made money. That's it, though. If you They were really, if you compare them to Paramount and Universal, they were drawing about 30% of what Paramount and Universal were bringing to the box office. So they switched to distribution. And I think that that switch from this powerful, powerful studio that was making their own films to acquiring things like Rock and Rule, which came to them through the uh, United Artists acquisition. Yeah, what do you? how do you make that switch? It's really, really hard. And they didn't do a very good job of it, actually. There's a lot of films that fall through the cracks that I think today are worthy films. I think this is a worthy film. I was blown away by Rock and Rule. I had never seen it before diving into this podcast. And also, sadly, even in like 2020, as someone who books films, there's a lot of MGM titles that fall through the cracks that are just like not in copies that you can get and the rights are all messed up. Part of the rights for Rock and Rule, my suspicion, has to do with music rights, which anytime you have a film like Get Crazy, which anytime you have music rights with like big artists that are repped by Sony or these, you know, huge Warners, these huge music labels, it's a nightmare. Like it's a total nightmare trying to renew the rights for 50 years down the road. And we need to talk about some of the big stars involved with this because you've got Deborah Harry. Once again, you've got Lou Reed. You've got Iggy Pop hangs out in here playing a giant demon. Um, you got Earth, Wind, and Fire once again. Thank you, Sergeant Pepper. And uh, cheap man, trick. like cheap trick, cheap yeah. trick, right, right, cheap trick is the male singing voice for Omar. Mm-hmm. Um, in this film, that like once again, the plot kind of matters and kind of doesn't. But apparently, there's like a major edit butchery job again that was done by MGM. But it is so beautiful, and the music mm-hmm. is so good, and the voice acting is so good that you're just mm-hmm. like, where did this little thing come from? It's mm-hmm. wild. This is a scary film. If I saw this as a kid, I think that might be sort of the confusion around promoting it and distributing it is, you know, we and we've talked about this on the podcast when we did um, Watership Down, like there's this misnomer that animations for children. This film is scary. It's strangely sexual. And it's about basically the apocalypse and Armageddon. It's very 2020. Watching this, I was just like, oh, yeah, we're going to be these rat people pretty soon. (laughs) It's not New York. It's Nuke York. I I love it. I'm a pun pun girl. I love it. There's a lot of puns. Uh, The the part of the fight, uh, but the difference between United Artists and MGM was I believe MGM was a little more interested in an adult animated film. Uh, and United Artists was fine with a kind of like older teen movie. Mm-hmm. So that's so weird because this is based on a children's film as well. It's uh, Nelvana made a short thing called The Devil and Daniel Mouse, which is more or less <laughs> the same plot, oh, but in a cute country band kind of way. That, too, is really scary. Like, the characters are—Nelvana's Nelvana's known for, when they did their original animation, for these, like, really long faces Mm -hmm. and, like, exaggerated Mm -hmm. features and big lips on certain characters. And and they're human but not at the same time. It's just very exaggerated. I find um, Care Bears, which is Nelvana, terrifying. Sure. Even when they're trying to be preschool, I'm like, oh, sweet God. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, when you talk about music rights, the kind of crazy thing is that this film never had a soundtrack. There was never a release of these 
at the time original songs most of these people have gone on to record these songs in some form or another uh but yeah the fact that you have these songs and even you know that the plot's a little scant it's kind of a fun weird anthropomorphic animal people get into trouble uh but the music is amazing i mm-hmm. think i think maybe even better than get crazy which has great music oh too. for sure and nobody phoned this in no. so you listen to people like deborah harry that song is really one of the songs that i couldn't get out of my mind The uh, melody is very, very um, haunting. And then Iggy Pop. It was freeing in a way because because I didn't have to be me, which is rather nice. And then Lou Reed being like... I felt very positive towards Mock because there are many things to work with with him. I could identify with him up to a point. The way he looked, uh, the things he said, the kind of things he believed in, there were a lot of ways I could relate to that. And even though I don't necessarily think that way, I could really bite into his character. People love this, and it it shows. And the music, like, I mean, any one of these people could have just been like, yeah, yeah, here's something from, like, my G catalog. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, and they really show up for this. Part of it is the fact that this was, they f- did the music before the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, they uh, didn't really have a script as much. They had a loose outline, but they animated to the music. So a lot of what you see, the movement ah. is so realistic, partially because they were working off of these performances and, and making the music really the focal point. I think the coming back to Sgt. Pepper's once again, Earth, Wind and Fire steal the show. Like that seems to be like a running theme. Like if you have Earth, Wind and Fire in your on your soundtrack or in your film, it's like that performance really stood out for me because it's you wouldn't think going up against Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Deborah Harry, which are very different musical genres, um, that that it would work, but it, it did. And it makes sense what you're saying, Cam, that the animation style flows so well. Mm-hmm. You know, these are anthropomorphized. They kind of look like r- rat, chipmunk, dog, goof troop. There's a, there's <laughs> yeah. a weird... There's I a bit of goof even, troop, yeah. There's a bit That's of goof what troop. they're supposed to be. Like, like I said, originally it was drats. And then yeah. you do get this, like, weird crawl that was apparently added by MGM yeah. at the beginning to, like, explain the, the world. Yeah, yeah, the and Star Wars crawl. And also give away the reveal that Mock is trying to... Mock is the bad guy. Mock yeah. Swagger, obviously, uh, is trying to end the world. But that's actually meant to be the big reveal. But for some reason, they give it away in the opening crawl. I have a very hard time, and maybe Cam, you know more about this, mm. piecing together. I So I watched this on Amazon Prime. Sure. Um, and maybe listeners, it might still be on Amazon Prime. I have no idea. But my sense is I watched the American version, which yeah. had a different voice actor for one of the characters, had that crawl, which I found annoying. Cam, is there, you watched the Canadian version on YouTube? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Retro rerun in Canada. It might be geo-blocked, I will say, probably. for any listeners it outside of Canada. It probably is, yeah. Because I believe it's an official one from the rights holders. But yeah, it's, I mean, the, the differences aren't huge. As you say, Paul Lamatt from American Graffiti voices uh, Omar in the American version. They wanted a star like Paul Lamatt, forgotten star of American Graffiti. There's still the crawl in the Canadian one. Qu- quite a lot of the MGM changes are actually uh, present in the Canadian. Um, mm. But yeah, it's very... They even changed the dialogue for the two things. So like when you watch the American version, it feels weird and choppy because they're not responding to what they're actually delivering. Hmm. Mm. That's yeah, weird. well, I'm sure that the the it's kind of the best Canadian voice talent available. It is the best Canadian. I'm gonna I'm gonna get into this. Becky, the voice actor, <laughs> yes. is like, here we go. Uh, We've got those are this. fighting words, Cam. Yeah. Apparently, you just mm-hmm. <laughs> enacted the Becky's in yeah. go mode. <laughs> um, yeah, my hands got very emphatic. I was like, you need to know. <laughs> um, yeah, because you need to know about people like Don Franks. Yeah. 
I mean, he played Dr. Claw in Inspector Gadget, oh uh, Sabretooth in X-Men, the animated series, a bunch of voices in ALF, the animated series. He had roles in the Ewoks and Star Wars droids animated series, including being the voice of Bubba Fett. And he is so good as Mock Swagger that when he shows up in this big, grand entrance, his voice is also indistinguishable from David Bowie just for a moment. Anyone want a beer? I'm sure more than a few people had a double take on that one. Any gravelly bad guy is Don Franks for the most part. Um, he's also the father of a dynasty of actors and voice actors, including Cree uh, Summer Franks, who just, I believe she just goes by Cree Summer now, mm-hmm. um, and Rainbow Frank. Uh, and they're both like huge deals now. That's right. Um, cool. The other person that you need to pay attention to is Susan Roman, who has, again, a huge resume, and people will know her. She's also in um, heavy metal. Most of those people were kicking around Mm. that kind of area. But she's known for playing uh, Sailor Jupiter in the Mm. Canadian dub of Mm -hmm. Sailor Moon. Um, That's her big claim to fame. But yeah, like her resume is absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think people give Canadians enough credit for like how strong their voice performances are. Mm -hmm. And that like most of these are the voices of people's childhoods and they don't know they're Canadian actors. All those shows you just named, I'm like, oh my God. Except for Alf the Animated Series, which I was not a fan of because he (laughs) ate cats. Listen, it's crazy that he never ate a cat on the TV show. But, that's, uh, but if that's he was going to eat a cat, it was going to be on the animated series, yeah. I figured. <laughs> no, I, I, I really love this movie. I think it's so beautiful. I'm glad people are seeing it now. Um, I think also it's got some like weirdly empowering female characters yeah. in it, too. Like Angel, who's the main character, who's this singer that Mock is like trying to use her voice to open up this portal to hell and end the world because he's not selling enough tickets yes. to his concert. He didn't sell which is, two tickets. It, wa- it wasn't sold out and that made him angry. <laughs> I love it. I love it yeah. so much. There, he has this trio of sidekicks who are like, you know, like the, the Beagle Boys, mm. I guess, from Scrooge McDuck. They have a sister named Cindy, yeah. uh, played by Catherine Gallant, who is just like, she's so empowered and she's like, we're going to go out. We're going to have fun. She roller skates everywhere. She's just so cool and so much fun. And like, I want to be her best friend. She, she was my, well, I love Mock, but she was my favorite character. It's like Cinderella, right? Her, she's like the, yeah, it's, she's ridiculous. She's like a, almost in a cheerleader's uniform, but she's got like yeah. giant wide shoulders. <laughs> Such a unique animation, animation choice to design her that way. Oh, yeah. But how much that this is not a children's movie that like people get vaporized mm-hmm. and melted and like the demons at the end are genuinely frightening and really cool looking. Like it's, it's very rock and roll and it is uh, very yeah. in your face. I would say like... 14 and up. 13 yeah. and up. Definitely the demon. I also find uh, the bad uh, henchwoman what's-her-face with the creepy pull-off face. Is Very she the, disturbing. Is her name anti-something? No. Oh, who's, no, that's, uh, that's Catherine O'Hara, who's the tattoo artist. I right, believe. the tattoo yes. artist is Catherine O'Hara. Yeah, that's, uh, like, I think it's a very early... Stop think about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> that's who, crazy. who would go on to be in Nightmare Before Christmas as a voice as well, so <laughs> yeah. yeah she's... And, I mean, Catherine O'Hara is also known for her fashion, playing the character of Moira on Shit's Creek. So we need to come back and talk about some serious fashion and uh, sexy vampires from 1983. One of these films was based on a novel by one of the most famous alien abductees in the world. We're going to find out about that as well as orgasm feeding aliens after the break. It's going to be a weird one, guys. 
Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, season two of the TV show is coming out December 6th, and you'll be able to see episodes covering 1975, 1986, 1994, and 2000. Not only will you see the faces of Cam, Alicia, and myself, and they're good faces, very expressive, but you're also going to hear from so many more film experts and maybe even some filmmakers talking about the movies you love. And here's where it gets even better. Hollywood Suite is in free preview for the whole month of December, and you can watch both seasons of A Year in Film and great movies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Don't forget to watch the first season of A Year in Film now and find out how to catch the free preview while it lasts at hollywoodsuite.ca. You know that Hollywood Suite airs great content, and they've got a real treat lined up. December 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 2000s channel is the premiere of Valley of Tears, a 10-part HBO Max original drama series. You'll be able to watch the first two episodes back-to-back, and then each subsequent episode will air weekly after that on Saturdays. Have raucous Saturday night plans? Don't worry. After the episodes air, they're going to be available on Hollywood Suite On Demand exclusively. Listeners, the trailer alone for Valley of Tears is gorgeous, which makes sense because it's Israel's highest-budget TV series ever, and clearly every dollar is on that screen. It follows four soldiers caught in the crossfire of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I'm excited to watch it, one, because I know nothing about the Yom Kippur War and would like to know more about it, and two, because when people ask me what I'm watching, I'm going to be like, oh, just this amazing HBO Max original 10-part series called Valley of Tears that's airing exclusively on Hollywood Suite in Canada, and then a conversation will be started. Check out hollywoodsuite.ca for more information and to see that awesome trailer. What's the first movie you saw that made you sit up and say, I don't know if this is good, but my God, this is exciting or, or weird or, or sexy or, or just a bag that you didn't know you had. I know for me, the first movie that confused me in that way was seeing a midnight screening as a young teen of 1975's The Rocky Horror Picture Show. We talk about Rocky Horror in season two of A Year in Film, and you're not going to want to miss that. But a lot of people forget that despite its cult status, it was still produced by 20th Century Fox and received a really wide distribution. What it did do is inspire a generation of movie weirdos, like me, to seek out more unusual fare. Movies that may not have had the biggest splash at the box office, but that certainly could be considered influential. Movies that Tim Curry pranced in fishnets for so they could scream at the heavens about (laughs) killer genitalia while looking fabulous. Movies like Liquid Sky. Alicia, this seems like a movie that you should love. It's New York. It's got a very distinctive visual style. It's fashion. What more do you want? I want a lot more, Becky, as it turns out. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I do love this film. I love this film for how bold and uh, just inexplicable it is. And nothing, no other film looks like this. No other film sounds like this. No other film feels like this. Uh, That being said, I would say everyone needs to see it once and then walk away. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not saying that in a bad way. Like, it's just, I think you'll, our listeners will understand in a minute. But um, this was the highest grossing film, highest grossing independent film of 1983. Now, when you Google Liquid Sky, a lot of you are going to see that it's 1982 is the, the year that's tied to it. 
It was released in 83 to the wider public, but did have a showing at the Montreal Film Festival, which actually got its start of its reputation here in Canada uh, in August of 1982. But it is, we're considering it a 1983 film for the purposes of a year in film. It's a very rare instance of an independent film produced in the United States by an almost entirely USSR crew. Uh, director Slava Zuckerman, who wrote the film along with star um, Anne Carlyle and I believe his wife as well, was a pretty successful documentary and commercial director, experienced in making Soviet uh, commercials and documentaries, and then also made films in Israel um, and came to New York and kind of fell into the hip. I mean, look, how unhip does it sound when I say the hip scene? I'm very unhip. <laughs> Hanging out with those hip Oh, my God. That's right. Yeah, I'm not I'm not as cool as the people in this film, but uh, he, <laughs> none of us are. At least you know, so it's he, okay. He, but you think about the scenes that these people were participating in. Now, usually we start the segment with a kind of bit of history. Mm-hmm. Here, it's intrinsically linked to to this film and you can't talk about this film without talking about the scene and how freaking cool these people were like I can't even imagine being yeah there. like I, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before I'm born in 1983 I want to hope that I had if I had been born in let's say the mid 60s or early 60s that I would be cool enough to be part of the scene that was happening in the early 80s in the East Village in New York around places like the Pyramid Club and Club 57 and the Mud Club um, this was really where you could go to the East Village on probably a Monday night. I was going to say a Friday night, but that's how big of a loser I am. P- people party on Mondays. Um, <laughs> and you could run into Keith Haring. You could run into, you could see a performance by Klaus Nomi. The band, the opening band could be the B-52s or the Cramps. Like this was really where New York cool and where art students, which we're going to talk about star Anne Carlyle of this film. And she also, um, tr- Slava Zuckerman didn't write very well in English. So he put her on as a co-writer so that she could kind of translate his screenplay into English. Um, this is really where all the cool kids, the up and coming artists were. And Slava Zuckerman fell into that crowd. He wanted to um, penetrate the Warhol factory, which he kind of did. Um, He got an early script of this film to Andy Warhol, had written a role for Andy Warhol, who was very interested in it, and it just sort of fell through. Um, He was able to cast Warhol's then-lover in in a very small role in this, in Liquid Sky. But this is really... um, this is what happens when very artistic people who have a very distinct vision and are part of a subculture are given carte blanche to do whatever they want. <laughs> and I say that with love. It does get kind of grating and kind of annoying. Like this reminds me of like when you would go to an OCAD like student showcase and there would always be like that one artist that you're like, oh, you are too self-aware <laughs> or like you're oh good. You're too... Or not self-aware enough. Sure, There's yeah, also that yeah. too, Either right? Either way. Um, it's it's a sci-fi film about heroin addicts who I'm speaking really slowly because it gets complicated. Who have aliens invade New York and realize that they can feed off of the pheromones that are produced when someone orgasms. Mm-hmm. Cam's, You're on your Cam's way. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, close, yes. close. <laughs> so far, this is correct. It's uh, and it, 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 you know, there's a. Um, there's a club that they all go to, all the characters in the film. There's, you know, an element of like hustling and it's two lovers, one played by Anne Carlyle, who actually plays a double role. She plays um, the role of the lead sort of like model and then she plays 
a male role uh, who's her antagonist, who's this like kind of rich kid, drug adult, doesn't have enough money, but is always trying to hustle for for more heroin. And then her girlfriend is this uh, performance artist played by Polly E. Shepard, who we'll talk about in a second. It is it's a it's a lot. It's if I had to think of a description for what this film looks like, it looks like neon kabuki and it sounds like synth scores of nothing but death marches. (laughs) The lighting in this is unbelievable. And I know there had to be a lot of rehearsals because the way it's lit, which is kind of like day glow, lots of neon, um, a lot of overexposure, would be very difficult. A lot of of these people were not actors, including Anne Carlyle. She was more of a model. So you do get this sort of amateur vibe off of Liquid Sky. With neon lighting, you actually can't move you that can't much. Move. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah. So they did It ruins the focus. So they did rehearse this over and over again using VHS mm. tapes and a handy cam. Mm-hmm. And like uh, there is like a weird feeling like a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, they, you must have been so high. This was a completely anti-drug set. Yeah. No one was doing yeah. drugs the entire time. They were snorting sugar, apparently. It was little piles of sugar. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a great plan. You know, it's better than the vitamin whatever they had Jonah Hill snorting on that oh, he had yeah. to be hospitalized I think for. all you hear is any of the fake snortables are you wish you were doing <laughs> yeah. No good. No good. <laughs> Nothing but, else numbs your nose is the thing. <laughs> the one thing I do have to say for this, because like it does have that weird art kid vibe, um, yeah. is that it feels like disciplined art kids. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, this movie oh, was yeah. not cheap to make. It's a $500,000 movie. It's a half million dollar movie, which in 1983 is a lot of money. So the mm-hmm. fact that they mm-hmm. were able to get their hands on this, create this film, find distribution, get it into film festivals, it does speak to a certain level of sophistication. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I also think it's worth saying that, all, like like you say, that it's uh, this movie about people doing drugs, but none of them did drugs. I think it's a very tongue-in-cheek look at this world, including, it's hard to know if stuff like Rhythm Box is such a good song, <laughs> but it seems like it's also kind of, uh, she gives a, 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 a eulogy for a dead person that's pretty goofy. So it's it seems like all of this is skewering this scene just as much yeah. as it's celebrating. Well, I think it's- it's key to note that it's it's directed by an outsider. Like Anne Carlyle was very much an insider, um, but Slava Zuckerman and his his partner were coming from directly from Israel to New York, and you know were were raised in the USSR during the Cold War. That's a very outside view. I can only imagine arriving to New York and going to these clubs for the first time and seeing like Klaus Nomi in those classic, iconic now iconic costumes. I can only imagine what that would have been like for someone behind the Iron Curtain. And well, like- <laughs> in interviews, Nina Vikarova, Slava's partner, um, she claims that she was actually in a gulag in oh, yeah. Russia oh, wow. and that she learned a lot of her craft by speaking to the artists there, like hot, super high-end artists, uh, teaching mm. her how to do these different things and how to do storytelling and filmmaking and everything because, you know, that's where all the artists were. I mean, wow. that's a very, maybe that's a like a talking point for emerging film students to like get out of film school and just immerse yourself in a gulag. <laughs> <laughs> film school is its own kind of gulag. Yeah. I think all film students would tell you. Uh, and you're definitely not going to make any money Money that so uh, I went to theater yeah. school. It is an endurance test. Let me tell yeah. you, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing too because, like you say, it is so avant garde. I mean, the cinematographer Yuri Naiman, he's mostly a teacher mm-hmm. now, but his films are known for these crazy visuals. He did the remake of DOA 
which is a really insanely <laughs> shot movie. I also think it's very interesting when we talk about these neon colors, it's easy to look at this film now and say, oh, well, yeah, that, you know, 80s uh, neon, but that their fashion choices were actually incredibly avant-garde for the early 80s. Yeah. The movie we're going to talk about next is much more what the fashion was like at the time. And there's actually, interestingly, a collection uh, by Steven Sprouse, a New York designer in 1983, which I think is hugely influenced mm-hmm. by Liquid Sky. You can see some of the exact outfits from Liquid Sky in his collection. And that collection is what a lot of people point to the eventual like popularity of Dayglow. I don't need to give you the Devil Wears Prada speech, but it's like that is what trickled down <laughs> into popular uh, neon stuff, which was actually a much more late 80s, early 90s mm-hmm. phenomenon. There's a couple costumes and outfits in here that Anne Carlyle wears that you're like Lady Gaga. That's exactly early. Oh, like, this early Lady so Gaga. Lady Gaga. I would love if, yeah. to know if Lady Gaga has seen this. I'm sure, sure she has. Seen what am I talking about? She has. I love Lady Gaga. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm so curious what her impression. <laughs> this is a huge film I discovered in the burlesques scene, at least in Toronto, like there's a really um, notable burlesque artist named Laura Desiree who has uh, an Anne Carlyle act that I was very excited about. So, I, I mean, there there are some huge, there's love for this film in other subcultures, like by nature of it being, by virtue of it being about subcultures, it then will attract other subcultures into loving it. Oh, sure. It also, like, we talked about the opening scene a little bit in this club, and I love movies that invite you to be a part of the scene immediately. So you're Mm -hmm. actually in there dancing with them, hanging out, doing stuff. I guess one thing to point out, and it's a bit of a trigger warning, is, and this is actually, I think, a merit to the film, you know, there are, I think, more than one rape scenes in this, but they're done, I thought they were done very it's weird to say they're done well, but you know what I'm saying. They're done very sophisticatedly. Tastefully, tactfully. Tactfully yeah, and yeah. actually quite realistically in terms of how that kind of violence is enacted. Um, and it's really to Anne Carlyle, who, you know, the lead actress in this film, to her merit. Like, she really performs very well. And I know they practice, you're talking about the dress rehearsals, they practice those scenes over and over again so that it would demystify sort of that violence and not put her in a place where she was very uncomfortable. That's I mean, called a safe set. That's yeah, a good thing. Yeah. yeah, and like now today we have things like intimacy coordinators and, and you know, obviously in 1983 that's not a thing on a set. But I'm impressed, you know, in, in reading an interview that she did um, that I think Slava was part of too, where she described that. Like they really, everything, as much as I'm saying like this feels like an OCAD showcase, it's not. Every decision is made very cogently and very actively and it, it's just it's just too much though, Becky. It's too much. Like if I could watch this in ten minute spurts over sure. a week, I think I would love it. But by like the forty minute mark, I was kind of like rocking back and forth. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, it's also it's interesting you brought it up alongside Rocky Horror because it really made a lot of its money as a midnight mm-hmm. movie at the Waverly, the same way Rocky Horror did. Uh, so yeah, it's a movie that I think is best enjoyed, uh, perhaps on a substance or two <laughs> or three. Uh, and yeah, I, it's worth also saying that pretty much every rapist gets brained by an alien. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can at least be happy there. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very unusual. I mean, I think it's huge with the queer community, partially because of Anne Carlyle playing these two roles. And it's interesting because she she was a big part of uh, this kind of avant garde uh, new wave modeling agency called La. Mm-hmm. at the time which uh, you google them I, I 
sent uh, Alicia a lookbook by them, and it's super they awesome. They are all so uh, tall, and, and they are all so skinny. <laughs> Alicia yeah, just so got this like, big grin on her face. Like, yeah. I wish listeners oh, yeah. could see how excited and you are. <laughs> they were among the first people, and Carlisle says, to have dyed hair. Uh, mm. by, and they worked a lot with this salon that's very famous called Sinandre, uh, which was, uh, if you look them up online, they were called the Studio 54 of Can hair. Can I just say, <laughs> Cam, I'm just so impressed with you right now. Like, <laughs> this is like a, I, a niche that I did not expect you to come up. Honestly, I I was just very interested in it. And and Anne Carlyle loves talking about this movie. Mm-hmm. She's a very interesting person. Yeah. Uh, she said she actually modeled more as Jimmy, as that androgynous <laughs> male look. I um, have to admit, when I first started watching this, it took me a little bit to figure out they were two different people. I was oh, like, man, absolutely. they cast I, well. But I no, mean, she also, she has a wonderful story where she always kind of wanted to play Jimmy. They cast someone else as Jimmy who did not show up. Yeah, he, he dropped <laughs> um, out. He just disappeared. Uh, but she she really wanted to be Jimmy. And she eventually, they were on a location scout. And she said, listen, let me prove that I can do Jimmy. And she did it by walking up to a woman and hitting on her and getting her number, which is amazing. And Carlisle is a badass. Um, <laughs> she's a badass. And she's an interesting woman. She went on to act in Crocodile Dundee and a couple other things. But she actually decided to quit acting uh, due to the AIDS crisis. She kind of felt that she couldn't continue in such a frivolous thing. And she went back to school to become an art therapist, primarily to work with AIDS patients. So it's a very kind of interesting choice. Both of these actresses actually did not have long continuing careers uh, after Liquid Sky. No, Paula E. Shepard, who um, I really love her in this film because she's just like... But she plays this balance between like being really nasty and manipulative and horrible and you still being like, yeah, but you're kind of cool and I kind of oh, wish you were my yeah. friend. You know, like it's a very uh, predatory place that I have fallen into that trap more than once. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I mean, it's she's a fascinating actress because it's worth saying she is incredibly diminutive. She is mm-hmm. a, a very short woman, but she has such a power she, behind she her She has acting. such a childlike face, which makes her role in this film when she's like threatening to cut someone really effective. Like, she does look like a child, I find. Well, she's terrifying, and that's why in uh, when she was 19 years old, she was cast in her only other role, which is the horror film uh, Alice Sweet Alice, which also gave us Brooke Shields, which if people haven't seen that one, man, that's a good one. That's something I, I that should pop seen up it. in your film. I'm going to watch it this week. I'm, like, I'm, it's, I'm excited. Oh, man. If you <laughs> it's have, another one I would say maybe worth watching, but I uh, hesitate at good ones. <laughs> for me, it's like if you have any sort of like religious stuff, sure, it's like yes. it hits those buttons real good. If you're a Catholic, yeah. you'll be blown away. <laughs> it's, it's just upsetting. And also Brooke Shields is just awesome because, you know, mm. Brooke Shields. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, she's just an interesting human being who just disappeared. And like there's no track of what she did mm-hmm. or she doesn't do interviews. Everyone's like, yeah, she was she amazing changed, in two movies. Changed and she changed her name. Did apparently. she? Hmm. Yes. Uh, she people believe she is a nurse in Seattle. But, oh my God! Uh, this she is likely amazing. changed her name. She <laughs> she also it's interesting because the the statement is she wanted a more nurturing career than acting. So b- both her and Anne Carlyle kind of moved in the same. And yet path. they're like for so so iconic and so famous because of this one film. Mm-hmm. It's really like a testament yeah. to Liquid Sky. Uh, we should also say too that this. In the film, they refer to heroin as liquid sky and this concept of euphoria. But before this movie, that was not a euphemism for heroin. This <laughs> Is that gave true? the name. Yeah, this gave oh, the name heroin li- liquid sky. Apparently, the term liquid sky comes from, I believe it's like a Greek poem that refers to that as euphoria and just this like above state. Before I saw this film, 
I was getting Vanilla Sky and Liquid Sky confused. <laughs> Very different movies. <laughs> Very upsetting uh, to me. Here's an easy way to tell them apart. Never watch Vanilla Sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, looking or, look around at the the scene of 1983 and enjoy it. And just know that this this movie is so visually influential. Um, even if it has a soundtrack that's like a full moon feature horror movie. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm sure that was avant-garde for the time. What do I know? There's something with the score. It's called, um, I might be getting this wrong, Electro Clash. Mm, it like yes. it kind of des- designated its own genre of music that I am very repelled by. So- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, the 2000s uh, electro clash movement yeah. is hugely influenced. You you are correct. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> kids today, Gen Gen Z will probably be baffled by electro clash, but you know it was the hundred gecks of its day, kids. I'm just gonna keep <laughs> listening to my 1920s radio shows. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm comfortable with. Sure. I think the other thing that kind of amazes me about this film is. That it was it was aimed at a mainstream audience. At least they claim it was. Um, they were hoping that it would uh, go, come off of Close Encounters of the Third Kind with the alien bit. The people yes. were like, oh, it's like that. And that also it's a Cinderella story and it's a housewife wanting to be punk and she comes from, oh, yeah, uh, that she comes from like yeah. nowhere and then she does this. Um, and yeah, so it's interesting that they were kind of hoping more mainstream people would like really be able to relate to this. And it's like, no, 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 this is very much a time capsule of certain people. And like the, the weird those that need to find this will find this. Could you imagine sure. if, like, let's say the the world is destroyed, aliens come to Earth and they <laughs> want to learn about Earthlings and they have this film? Which <laughs> like, is very meta because it's about aliens. But I'm just like, it's so, I, I can't, if someone asked me, like, what's one of the most unique visions you've ever seen outside of, like, let's say the silent era, I'd be like, liquid sky. Yeah. Well, and also we didn't even get into the the whole thing at the end where the Anne Carlyle character, Margaret, not Jimmy, although Jimmy gets killed by Margaret, yeah. uh, ends up killing people with her with her genitalia. She ends up murdering yeah. people in that way, but they sort of disappear as she's having sex with them. It's a very weird thing. I think people should watch this film. Like I say, just watch it. <laughs> And then yeah. walk away. It's it's hard to explain. Definitely don't watch it twice in one year like Alicia and I did. That's that's the mistake. <laughs> then you start to see the holes. Uh, I, I, I just worry I'm going to get infected by aliens, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, we talked about the scenesters in this, and uh, that's very much one way that the new wave went. But the other direction was in this dark, broody, shadowy sort of world, which was... Goth. And it was pioneered by bands like Joy Division, Susie and the Banshees, The Cure, and the band that provided our next film's iconic opening song and performance, Bauhaus. If you went to a goth club in most cities from like the mid-80s to today, you'll find that most of the people there were trying to juggle looking mysterious, breathing in a corset, and deciding if they want to dance with the guy their friends have dubbed Jeff the Perfectly Serviceable Goth. But the <laughs> aspiration... <laughs> Sorry. But the aspiration of every goth kid, even if they don't want to admit it, was to look as effortlessly cool as the people in the opening of Tony Scott's The Hunger. Cam, 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 you grew up in Edmonton like I did. You probably went to the similar clubs that I did. You know the kind of people I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Uh, Goth, weirdly huge in Edmonton. uh, Edmonton loves a subculture. Uh, I think, I don't know if it made it into the final cut, but in a year in film, I've talked about the huge ska revival in uh, early 2000s Edmonton. Uh, Oh, you have no idea. It's niche. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting thing, and this movie is absolutely 
absolutely. It's the one that a lot of people point to because it's so visual and so sexy. It's not my favorite movie, but uh, but it definitely you can't deny that it's beautiful. And I think a lot of that has to do with Tony Scott, who is really trying to make his mark. Uh, he, of course, started out, he's the brother of Ridley Scott. Um, he followed a lot in Ridley's footsteps, but he actually had ambition to become a painter. Um, that was his, his big thing. But when he graduated from art school, Ridley had become famous enough that he had uh, Ridley Scott Associates sort of little production company and he was like Tony please please take it over make commercials you'll pay off your student debts uh, and Tony ended up being a relatively famous commercial director much like Ridley was and as we talked about last time uh, with Adrian Line there was this huge wave of Brits who worked in commercials coming over and actually Tony saw that Tony saw his compatriots like Alan Parker uh, Hugh Hudson who just had won the Oscar for Chariots of Fire he saw them making big Hollywood careers so he started to plan his and actually a part of his plan uh, which never came to fruition was an adaptation of Interview with the Vampire who, which had come out in uh, the 1970s the Anne Rice novel he really wanted to do it he was pitching it around and, and when he pitched it uh, to a, a certain studio they were like, oh, you, we have a vampire movie. It's called The Hunger. <laughs> do you want this? Uh, do you want to do it? And he went, uh, close enough. <laughs> and uh, he brought his style, this kind of sumptuous, he was known, he, he calls himself a rock and roll uh, filmmaker. And uh, he just went on to uh, create this kind of wild, glossy movie that really, I think, pushed the goth sensibility further. Yeah, and very much created that definitive style of like the smaller dark glasses and like I mean it, it resonates forward into Interview with the Vampire and like some mm -hmm. of the modern eras there, right? Where it's like the the collared shirts and mm -hmm. the the not quite waistcoats but very tailored sort of jackets and it's I mean it is David Bowie too, who you put anything on him and he sure, looks amazing. Yeah. David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. I mean Ridiculous. what more do you want? Yeah. <laughs> this is the three sexiest people and apparently now, according to Susan Sarandon, she did say this posthumously uh, of David Bowie's death, the two of them became lovers. And there is this really delightful contemporary interview from 1983 with Susan Sarandon and David Bowie, where they sit together on a couch, like almost Barbara Waltersy style. And they just have the most wonderful chemistry. Do you like being famous? That's always interested me as well. The, the, the aspect of really crying out for attention when you first start and then when you receive it you don't want it anymore <laughs> you do your best to sort of avoid interviews and avoid being photographed and there's a time in your life when you sort of you give your right arm to be photographed and, and, mm -hmm. and asked your opinion yeah but you can get a seat in a restaurant that's <laughs> this was a book before it was a film, and uh, I kind of teased this earlier. The Hunger was written by one of the most outspoken and famous alien abductees in the world, or experiencer, which is the accepted term uh, within the UFO researcher community, uh, who is Whitley Strieber. Um, he was on track to be like the next Stephen King. Almost as soon as they were published, his first novels were turned into feature films, uh, including Wolfen, The Hunger, uh, um, later on, they would adapt one of his novels to be uh, The Day After Tomorrow. Not great film, but awesome visuals. Um, and the big one was Communion, which is based on his, of course, being an experiencer. The movie Communion, it starred Christopher Walken, and it gave us the image of the little gray alien with the big black eyes that we all know and are, quite frankly, terrified by. Funny side note, uh, just so you can get an idea of Whitley Strieber in your head, uh, Dan Aykroyd actually campaigned to play him in the film and he lost it to walk in. 
And Whitley was like, yeah, yeah, that would have been way more accurate. Anyway, his mainstream career was almost totally derailed by his speaking out publicly about his time with aliens, uh, including an implant he says he has behind his ear that helps him write and moves away from scalpels when people try to investigate it surgically. The general consensus of people who have not actually assessed this human being is that he has temporal lobe epilepsy, which uh, is one of the reasons we have for alien abduction experiences, is that it's these little seizures that happen that cause us to hallucinate in different ways in the frontal lobe. Um, He claims he's been tested for it and doesn't have it. But uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating human being who also wrote this fantastic book about vampires. I just love that you're debunking the existence of aliens on this podcast. (laughs) I did not expect it to go in this route. I thought you were going to say it's commonly known that aliens do not exist. <laughs> I also thought it would be about Liquid Sky and not the hunger when Becky finally debunks <laughs> yeah, alien abductions. True, true. <laughs> no, those heroin aliens exist, just not the gray one. Pretty well, but we're talking about vampires. We're back yes. into vampires, not aliens. And so, like, this also isn't your traditional way of looking at vampires either, That which also makes it very unique. Uh, Alicia, you love the vampires. Like, what is? how does this <laughs> resonate for you? Um, you know what? I've seen you talk about Dracula. I yeah, know. The embrace of the grave. You yeah, I, I, I laughed to disguise my hubris. Um, I It's true. There's so few vampire films that I dislike. I am a sucker for them. I'm, I'm a sucker for this film. This film is pretty divisive, I think. There's people who, I think generally everyone acknowledges this looks incredible. Yeah, I don't gorgeous. know how you could ever fault its cinematography, its costume design, both of which we'll talk about in a minute. However, as a vampire film, there is very little that happens and very little plot and a lot of sort of wayward storylines. I'm fine with that. A film that looks this good can do whatever it wants. I think it's more about creating a mood. If we're talking about the goth subculture, which is a very moody subculture, it was seems like Tony Scott was more interested in the mood of the moment Mm -hmm. than whether any of the storylines added up. I watched this with a friend recently who I love watching films with her. And she really, she, she never has a review of the film right away. She always waits until the next day to let me know what she thought. And her review was, I thought it looked very good. I was very frustrated by how all of the upholstery in their house was white (laughs) Because if they were going to murder all these people, who cleaned up the couches? That was her only (laughs) response to this film, which I get where she's coming from because it's a fantasy film. It's a horror film. You're not supposed to, you know, vampires don't exist. Therefore, why are we scrutinizing if the couch has been scotch guarded or not? But I do understand that line of thinking because there's something slightly missing from this film. I just ultimately do not give a damn because it looks amazing. And if you have Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie and a Bauhaus, that the first 20 minutes of this film, which I believe David Bowie has once referenced, are yes. impeccable. Um, there's a recently, you know, we're doing this in 2020. There was recently a meme that went around, a, a viral video of, it's a black and white video of um, bats all hanging upside down from their from their cage. And if they they just reverse the video so they're actually looking like they're upright and then they put it to this music and they're all like dancing. It's like just the average goth club. Like, <laughs> I love, this is one of my favorite memes. It, it just, it, it was so, for me, 
the hunger. It, this film goes back centuries. It st- opens in some ways in the Egyptian times with Catherine Deneuve as like an Egyptian goddess when she's she's her vampirism goes back all the way to there. It then flashes forward to the neoclassical era in the early 1800s or perhaps the 1700s. Then we're in like 1980s New York. Like I love that kind of time travel and I don't think it's necessary. It's all just sort of like frosting, goth frosting. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Which is black. Because, um, yeah. I mean, this is vampirism. And, and uh, we talked about it mm. uh, in an, an earlier episode about how a lot of people were looking back at a movie and making it like it's an AIDS allegory. Yeah. But this is, again, this is not part of that. It's This is me being a real uh, specific axe to grind. But I feel like 1983 actually has two movies that are often uh, misattributed as AIDS metaphors, I believe. The Hunger and The Fly. Mm. The truth is, is that... 1983 is really the tipping point of HIV AIDS as we know it. Uh, At the time, it was still called GRID most popularly with the gay-related immunity disorder, um, ah. which, yeah, I mean, obviously that kind of changed. Not, not a problematic <laughs> name at all. No, no. no. Yes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was just beginning to be mentioned in stuff like the New York Times, which actually helped popularize AIDS as a term. The And, I mean, you have to just remember that films take a long time to make. Uh, as much as I'm sure people like David Bowie were aware of the, the impending crisis, it just wouldn't be involved in movies. And David Cronenberg has gone far enough to say that The Fly is just about aging and disease. And I think that this is very much the same kind of feeling in this film. The thing to note, what made the later vampire movies in the 1980s uh, so seemingly related to AIDS was, of course, the fact that AIDS is related to blood. And that information was just coming out in 1983. So unless they you know, yeah. shot this as they read medical journals as and then released it a week later, uh, the truth is that this is this is the one of the last pre-AIDS uh, vampire movies. And also, it's interestingly, as I say, there's a big vampire boom, but this actually predates that as well. Yeah. The, that big swell of vampire movies really happened from 1985 onward. Well, and I'm actually really glad that you brought that up um, because we do, when we talk about a year in film in our 1992 episode on Bram Stoker's Dracula, which Becky referenced me being a fanatic for, which I am, uh, all the whole like idea of yoking horror and relating it to the AIDS crisis kind of comes up around an AB, Amy Tobin article that's written in Film Comment in mm-hmm. I think I think ninety three on Alien three the David Fincher film hmm. and I I remember reading that and as a film student and I think I did exactly what you're what bothers you Cam is I then went backwards and started attributing films like The Hunger and films like even Liquid Sky to the AIDS crisis so I'm. Very happy that you pointed that out, that it really kind of occurs more in the early 90s when there was more known about AIDS and HIV. And you're right. Films take a long time to conceive, especially if they're based on books. Like, it doesn't oh, yeah, make sense. Yeah. Like, and I, I, it's also a great queer film. So there's there's like nothing. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, and I don't want to be the metaphor police. <laughs> you, you can choose to read whatever you want into anything. But I think it's always important, especially if you're theorizing to know what the intentions the filmmakers likely had. But this also has a whole new take on the vampire mythos itself in that it's actually a bloodborne pathogen that mm-hmm. causes um, Catherine Deneuve's uh, companions to rapidly age if they don't get a certain amount of it and that they just kind of die off before she does, which also very much an AIDS thing. Like, yeah, you know, that oh, kind absolutely. of like shrinking I, I, it in. I can see putting it yeah, on. I can <laughs> absolutely see why people think this is an AIDS metaphor. Same with the fly. 
fly. Also, they don't have uh, they don't have um, fangs. They have these little knives that they slice. And it's worth saying they never say the word vampire. That's right. uh, It's an interesting movie in that regard. But yeah, it definitely seems like an AIDS metaphor. It's just the big tragedy of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s was it was relatively ignored by mass culture. But Alicia, you talked about this being a very sexy film, and it most certainly is. And this is one of the first instances in a mainstream film of a lesbian sex scene, Mm -hmm. which is handled actually really well and very sexy. Yeah, it's it's obviously between Catherine Deneuve, um, you know, who is someone that, as an actress, she's obviously French has been linked to sort of sexy European films for a very long time, especially if you want to just pick one out, like Louis Buñuel's uh, Belle de Jour, which was kind of about S&M and, um, you know, sexual fantasies. And so it's not unusual for Catherine Genoeve to be cast this way. I think just putting her, her her lover being Susan Sarandon, what's one of the most attractive women like of all time, I, she, she still like looks insanely great. Um, it's just a really, it's just shot really well. It's shot almost like a music video, um, mm-hmm. and it it isn't and it's super dreamy and ethereal. It's a, it's surreal and ethereal, and it's not necessarily there's there's not a ton of voyeurism in the shot or the camera angles. It's not really focused much on nudity either. It's just. Uh, an intimacy that they achieve, um, almost like an emotional and intellectual intellectual intimacy that they can achieve in this physical act. And it's just, I think it's one of my favorite sex scenes. One of my favorite sex scenes is Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> So like, this is like not quite there, but it's like, it's close to that. I also think it's like, that. May, this is maybe a hot take and, and maybe somebody can correct me on it, but I feel like it it's probably very influential on the late 80s and 90s softcore. Like if I think of a yeah. Zalman King scene, for oh, instance, I, love I think King. it's very influenced by this. And I mean, as much as there were Radley Metzgers and things before this that were making erotica with sumptuous visuals, something about the lighting of Tony Scott, something about the music, I think really must have inspired a lot of the softcore filmmakers that would follow. You could just cut out the sex scene and do an entire showcase Drambui review. Sure. (laughs) It's a real red shoe diary. Yeah, for non-Canadians listening, I'm sorry. It's just a very specific Canadian thing that we had on late night television in the 90s, uh, sponsored by Drambui, the liqueur, uh, where a lot of softcore kind of erotica thriller films were shown. Um, Wasn't it at one point hosted by Cameron Bailey, uh, who is now the head of the TIFF Bell Lightbox? Of TIFF in general. I would prefer not to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) Him and uh, Valerie Bahajar. But yeah, I I mean, one of the interesting things, too, is this is a part of a long history of lesbian vampire erotica, too. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes back to the book Carmilla. But uh, but yeah, there. It's interesting when you bring up those old late night movies because it's you'd be as likely to see a lot of the Jess Franco, uh, you know, Vampiros Lesbos or any number of those, or the old Hammer uh, mm-hmm. ones where they're biting each other's breasts. Mm-hmm. Vampires have always been a way to kind of like insert a little bit of erotica. Yeah, by making it fantasy, all of a sudden, then it's kind of sort. Of, if it's mm-hmm. fantasy, then it's sanitized, and, and it's not the lesbian usually gets killed. Even yeah. in this case, that's uh, pretty standard. Yeah. But this is also about intimacy, right? And about switching, about having partners and choosing to be with someone for a long time. That, mm-hmm. like, because you're with them for a long time. And there's my personal favorite scene of this is actually the shower scene with David Bowie. Uh, Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie have just killed two people from the club, and they then shower off. And he just looks at her, and he's like, "Forever, forever." <laughs> and the two of them just start yeah. like, you know, snogging it out. And I'm like. That's for me. I mean, that was uh, written for me. I wasn't born, but it's written for me. <laughs> Not to be the man underlining the point, 
but I think, you know, if I was to send home a workbook with uh, teenagers, I would say, what is the hunger in the hunger? And I (laughs) I would say that it is the hunger for intimacy in a partner because Catherine Deneuve is driven to put these people through horrible hell. It's why she's really a monster. It's not the drinking the blood. It's the turning these people knowing that they will not live forever, lying to them. When my friend made the couch anecdote and I tried to explain why I like this film and went and tried to tried to go beyond just the style of it. I was like, if you just think of the film entirely as a breakup film, like what happens mm. when you break up with someone and the psychological damage and you rebound with you always have like another partner in the wings when you know shit's hitting the fan and then which would be the little girl in this film who mm. gets killed off uh, very brutally and then instantly Deneuve is attracted to Susan Sarandon like there's this sort of food chain of intimacy and trying your hardest to grapple with needing needing companionship when it can't be forever because Catherine Deneuve's character knows it can't be forever. It's happened to all of her lovers. They are literally all in a coffin up in the yeah. attic, writhing in pain, writhing or writhing? Writhing. Writhing. Withering is actually probably <laughs> yeah. appropriate. Well, they, they are actually withering. That's true. And they're all, like she knows every time she engages a new partner that it's not forever. Sorry, Becky, to smash your your fantasy of that shower scene. David Bowie is forever yeah. in an all in heart. Yeah, hearts. yeah. Okay. I mean, but it's, uh, yeah, the idea of like disengaging and disconnecting from someone that you've been, in this case, connected to for what, 400 years? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's also worth noting, I will say that I find this movie a bit dull. The visuals are not enough to keep my attention, but it does have some really great classic horror moments, too. Like you say, the girl being killed. Uh, it has wonderful makeup from Dick Smith, who's known for a lot mm-hmm. of his gory creations. Uh, and the ending is wonderful, kind of crazy, over the top horror in a way that I found really, really mm-hmm. pleasing after being a little bored by 20 minutes of erotica. <laughs> well, we should bring this into Tony Scott as well, because Tony Scott would later be very, very famous for a number of films, including Top Gun. Um, and, but after this film, he genuinely thought his career was over. Mm-hmm. And actually, it took the fact, as we've mentioned in the previous episode, uh, talking about Flashdance, the two people who were very taken with The Hunger were Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm-hmm. And they actually approached Ridley and then approached Tony to uh, make Top Gun. And they were very concerned, essentially, with Top Gun. What they cared most about was a very visual director. They also approached David Cronenberg, apparently. Uh, So, yeah, they were looking for people with very unique visual styles. So the fact that this film is criticized often as style over substance actually helped Tony Scott. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he says he doesn't mind that criticism because he's so proud of the style. It's interesting to talk about David Bowie because it's an interesting time for his career. Let's Dance had come out, uh, which was a massive commercial success, I believe his most successful album, Mm -hmm. but a massive critical flop. Critics hated it. They considered him a real sellout at the time. Hmm. It forced him to do this massive world tour where he stopped in little places like Winnipeg and Edmonton in Canada, which created some of the highest selling concerts of all time in Canada. But he also had a huge coming out as an actor. Uh, He's been in a few roles before, but uh, in 1983, along with The Hunger, he had Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. I love that. He had a cameo in Yellowbeard. Interestingly, uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, while it was filmed in the 70s, was really properly released in 1983. Mm -hmm. So he was a man who was all over the cinemas. 
He was pretty uncomfortable with being in the hunger as well and weirdly wanted to be in Top Gun. The hunger, I felt very uncomfortable with that role, although I loved being involved in a Tony Scott movie. I thought Tony was tremendous, absolutely tremendous. And his second film being Top Gun, I thought, why did you give me your first film, Tony? (laughs) Yeah, he, uh, I think he doesn't like violence, is the truth. Uh, He quite often, he has a great quote that says, uh, you know, there's nothing that looks like it, but I'm worried that it's just perversely bloody at some Mm -hmm. points. And also, (laughs) as you say, he he has the uh, shadiest uh, quote of, wow, those first 20 minutes really rattle along, huh? And it's like, oh, (laughs) Mr. Boy, what do you think of the rest of the film? Yeah. Yeah. He's good in it. I I would say that interesting, like, I mean, no knock on Deneuve. I think she does a wonderful job. I think Deneuve and Sarandon are great. Deneuve just doesn't get a lot to do. I think that's the biggest thing. She gets so much to do because he has this crazy aging that he does so wonderfully. Yeah. So it's it's just like a fascinating performance for Deneuve. He's almost like a universal monster. Oh, true. It's a very creepy thing. And again, at the end, it's wonderful to see. Uh, No spoilers, but maybe he comes back. (laughs) But I also alluded to his like his commitment to his performance. He would go on the George Washington Bridge and scream uh, every punk lyric he knew to get his voice raspy to play those older character scenes. And it's like you understand you could have given yourself nodules and ended your career. Right. Like you could you could have finished. Yeah, he'd already gone half blind from like an incident on set. And then, yeah. Isn't that also, was it Lauren Bacall who said she ran out into the desert and screamed until she had her raspy voice? Some classical raspy, smoky actress, I believe, (laughs) uh, said that that was her thing. She ran out into the desert and just screamed until she couldn't scream anymore. Uh, Man, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I can can kind of empathize with Lauren McCall at this point (laughs) because this has been an awesome episode. I've really enjoyed talking to both of you. Uh, So we're going to wrap this up, but I want to once again thank Alicia Fletcher. Thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Make sure everyone sees that bat upside down goth club meme. That's like (laughs) more than the hunger. Just watch the... 13-second bat meme. Thank you. Cam, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure as always. Thank you. Let's do this podcast forever. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, that's everything for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. And you can join us again in two weeks where we're going to discuss a film that pioneered queer cinema in the 90s and also contains the single longest shot to date of a carpet. Longer than The Shining, even. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. But they just don't understand us new women. After all, every now and then a girl's got to get out and dance. Catch my drift? 